Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined uh, by my two uh, colleagues, uh, Ryan Sweet. Ryan is Director of uh, Real-Time Economics, uh, and we'll be getting to the indicators uh, shortly like we typically do. And also Chris Dorides. Uh, Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist. Uh, do you guys ever want a different title? Are you happy with those titles? Just ask. I've got it. Uh, yeah, it's better than uh, Crypto King. So uh, uh, Crypto King, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> much better. Yeah. And you, handing Brian? Out, you handing out new titles? Uh, you know, yeah. we always have debates about titles. It's kind of fun to think about titles. No big deal. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. You're back from the beach, I see. I am. Back, back to reality. Yeah, very good. And uh, But you never really escaped, right? You, 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 went to, you made all the podcasts, right? Oh, well, I'm not going to miss them for, for anything, but yeah, I, mean, I did a little bit of work here and there, but doing work down the street, there's that old saying, like a bad day in the golf course is a good day in the office. It's better than a good day in the office, but <laughs> you know, that all applies. That sounds like a 1950s slogan to me. I never, yeah, that's, yeah. Back in the day. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, uh, we are going to take a break for next week, though. We're uh, we're not going to have a podcast uh, for uh, next Friday, which is uh, what is that? That would be July second, I guess. So uh, just for the July fourth weekend, we're going to take the week off. Then we're going to come back uh, the week after, and I I do have a guest, uh, Wayne Best. Wayne is the chief economist of Visa, and he's you know obviously has a lot of cool data uh, based on uh, usage of uh, of the visa payment system and on consumers. And he'll be talking about that. And we'll talk about the consumer more broadly, obviously key driver of what's going on in the economy. So uh, we'll look forward to that. Uh, this uh, podcast, uh, I thought we devoted to uh, markets, uh, their uh, asset markets. Uh, they're, they're red hot. I mean, as I'm speaking now, I think the stock market, the S&P 500 is at a new record high. And it seems like we've been hitting record highs daily. And of course, We've been talking about the sizzling housing market and house prices, and, and of course, crypto. We've had a lot of fun with that. That that's back down, but uh, you know, it's uh, still parabolic compared to where it was a couple of years ago. Uh, CRE, price, commercial real estate values, commodity prices. Pick pick your asset uh, prices are up. So I thought we uh, the big topic this week would be about. Uh, would be about asset markets. But before we go there, uh, as we uh, do uh, on insight, we as we do on inside economics, we go into the data and the statistics. And um, Ryan, uh, director of real time economics, uh, what's uh, what's the real time statistic that you want to point out uh, for this week? All right, we're going to go with uh, sticking with the big topic fifteen point four two. As of right now, fifteen point four two, and it has to do with markets. Uh, oh, just went down to fifteen point four one. This is real time. Okay. I'm telling you, I'm staring right. at it. It okay. is real time. So, these are. This so is a good hint. I know that's a financial market. Mm -hmm. Chris, do you have any idea what he's 15. talking about? It can't, it's not related to bonds because nothing is over two percent in bonds, uh, or, or maybe. Increase uh, in no. the S and P five hundred. No, see. it's it's down a lot over the last uh, five to ten business days. It's below it's a historical a average of nineteen and a half. 
19 and a half. Oh boy. Any ideas, Chris? Can you give us um, another hint that won't give it away? It's in the U.S. macro. It's model. not a commodity, is it? Is it a commodity? No. We forecast not it. Not a commodity. We forecast it. We forecast it. We forecast it. It has to do with And it's a daily. Market. Stocks, bonds. Uh, oh, is this? Yeah, I'm just swinging here uh, at the underhand softball. Oh, this is more like a, a hardball overhand pitch. It's not like the VIX index, is it? It's the VIX. Oh, okay. Oh, there okay. you go. All right. You're surprised so, I got that. You thought I, you were giving up on me. No, I thought you guys were going to get it much sooner. But So yeah, the, VIX, the VIX is uh, a measure of expected uh, fluctuations in the, in the S&P 500 over the next 30 days. It's a, it's a useful you know, fear gauge. So when it's going down, there's a lot more optimism in the market than you know, when policy uncertainty is going up or there's a lot of fear about the economy, the VIX goes up. So you said it's, what'd you say it was? 15.1? 15.42 now. It went back up. <laughs> it went back up. Listening to us, a lot more <laughs> angst out there, you know, in the marketplace yeah. as we prepare to talk about markets. So you're saying 15.4 is actually low compared to its uh, average, which is closer to 19. <laughs> Correct. Right. Okay. But, you know, that, that's not signaling anything uh, any, of any consequence, right? I mean, that's pretty kind of... No, I think it just supports the idea there's a lot of optimism, optimism in the market and there's not a lot of fear, you know, uh, even though the Fed turned a little bit more hawkish uncertainty around monetary policy is low, uncertainty about fiscal policies coming down. So we would argue that, you know, the stock market is going to remain pretty strong going forward. And we forecast the VIX in, in significant, we imagine, you know, can you imagine we're forecasting a measure of angst in the financial system? So that, that takes a lot of hubris. Uh, but we do that because uh, it's a key variable that the Federal Reserve provides in the bank stress testing process. So, they give us, I think, 26 variables as part of the CCAR, the so-called CCAR stress test scenario. And that's a, a gauge of angst in the financial system. And it's a key variable that banks and other financial institutions use for pricing, uh, securities, loans, that kind of thing. And so uh, uh, that that's part of the uh, CCAR process. And therefore, we brought that variable into our models and uh, produced forecasts for, for that, excuse me, and uh, and provide that to our clients. Uh, so I, I don't think we would, we would have done that otherwise. We wouldn't have modeled and forecast VIX, I don't think, if not for the fact that the Fed uh, is using it in the stress testing process. But that's a good I one. The, that's a really good yeah, one. I use the VIX to you know forecast uh, high-yield uh, corporate bond spreads. It Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. it does. Because that spread, what is, that spread represents... Uh, concerns about not getting repaid on that bond. From, uh, on that bond, so there's if you're if you're worried about the financial system, the economy, uh, the the probability you won't get paid back on on that bond are, is higher, and so that spread is higher. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and uh, okay. So Chris, uh, what, what's your uh, statistic uh, this week? Yeah, so one that uh, stuck out to me this week was uh, 7.6%. 7 7.6%. 7 7 
Um, is it housing related? Nope. nope. Okay. Oh, uh, you're going break off. From I'm, I'm going off the reservation. Right? Going off the reservation here. Uh, so, so that right because Ryan asked that question it means he doesn't know right off the bat, which is that's a bad sign. If Ryan doesn't know it right off the bat, this has got to be a tough one. Can, well, you want to go to say? You know, he's, he's easing back into things here. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, he, he needs to rev up here. Uh, get 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 his game back. So so. Uh, you want to give us a hint? Uh, sure, you... it's top line, headline. It's perhaps the biggest statistic in the U.S. economy. Uh... What? 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 What's he talking about? Are we looking at the same economy? Yeah, real what? Are you talking about Singapore or what are you talking about? Seven point six. This isn't GDP. GDP. No, GDP was six four. You're close six... though. You're very close. Oh. It's not GDP. Uh, gross domestic is. income? I don't yes, know. Yes, there you go. Ooh, oh, jeez. Mark oh. is on fire. There you go. He's, oh, wow. He's gee Louise. Oh, no. Are we going to get in the debate GDI versus GDP? No, well, not a debate. You brought I think it up. Both... You got to explain it to people. You know, what, what is GDI, G, gross domestic income, and why is that important relative to GDP? So it's a, so GDI is an alternative measure of the, the value of output uh, in the economy, right? So GDP is an expenditure approach, approach right? We, we sum up uh, consumption, investment, government spending, net exports, right? Everyone's familiar with that. And that was 6.4% uh, growth in the first quarter. So that, that grabs the headline. That's the one everyone focuses on. GDI is an alternative measure, uh, which is basically looking at the income, right? Summing up the incomes. And in theory, those two, right? Someone's expenditure should be someone else's income. So under GDI, we sum up wages, profits, taxes, all the other um, income categories, right? So again, in theory, they, mm -hmm. they sum up to each other over long horizons. You see that they, they match each other uh, quite well, but right now there's a bit of a disparity, right? 7.6 versus 6.4. I like to use the average of the two to get a sense of the, of the true underlying uh, output. And so that suggests that, uh, you know, the economy is growing even stronger uh, than the GDP statistic might indicate. So it's, it's a positive, uh, certainly indicating strength in the economy. Yeah, it makes does it, sense. Does G, GDI include Ryan? transfer payments? I think it does. GDP, uh, yeah, and there's a correction, I believe that's made to- uh, Adjust for that? To adjust for that. Okay. Yeah, GD, the reason why I think people don't really focus on uh, GDI, gross domestic income, is that it's a bit lagged relative to GDP. So GDP comes out, the end of the month following the previous quarter for that quarter. And I don't think GDI comes out for another month after that, right? Or maybe it's, yes, it's the month after, because they need profits, corporate profits to Correct. calculate GDI. And that's just a little bit, that comes from tax returns and it just takes a little bit of time to bring, get all that data together. So it just, it's lagged a little bit, but, but I think you're right. I, there was a, a, a fair amount of research around this in the Obama administration, I think the Council of Economic Advisors uh, came to the conclusion that the uh, a, a better measure of the health of the economy was was exactly what you're doing a, a, a equal weighted average of GDP and GDI uh, that that worked better. At, uh, I think is actually predicting the next quarter GDP than looking looking at GDP, but um, certainly a good statistic. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 I'm just going to, I'm not going to uh, quiz you. Maybe I'll come up with a quiz in a second, but I, I do want to point out, I'm going to go to my 
go-to indicator that's the back to normal index uh that uh rose again uh 93.7 uh last week 93.7 means we're 93.7 percent of the level of economic activity that prevailed right before the pandemic so we're still you know six seven percent percentage points below where we were. And just as a refresher, that back to normal index is a compilation of a lot of statistics, government uh, provided statistics, uh, uh, in, including our GDP tracker, uh, but also a lot of third party data. And uh, I think we now have a half a dozen states that are back to normal by that index. You know, Florida being the largest, it's completely recovered, you know, what it lost during the pandemic and, and then some. And the states that continue to lag are New York, not surprisingly, that got hit really hard by the pandemic in Illinois. And I think they're now at 82, 83%. So still a ways to go here, but clearly making uh, a lot of progress. So uh, good news on, uh, on that front. Is there, um, a major, is there a major driver in the index? Is, is it mobility? It's been driving that up. Yeah. Uh, I haven't looked at this past, I don't know what drove it up this past week. I haven't had a chance to dig into it. Uh, but pretty much everything is kind of pointing up. Uh, I think recently the, the amount of people going through TSA checkpoints has really picked up quite a bit. That, that's a, an indicator that we include in that back to normal index. Uh, we're still, uh, TSA checkpoints, uh, people going through TSA checkpoints still isn't back to pre-pandemic levels, but it's getting there pretty fast. Uh, I think seated diners, you know, we uh, get the data from open table and that uh, measures the number of people who are making reservations to go to restaurants. That's come back quite a bit in the last, uh, well, couple, three months as we've reopened. And I think that's adding, uh, adding to it. In uh, our, our own business confidence index, uh, we have a survey that we conduct every week. Uh, that's been slowly but steadily improving. Uh, and it's now at a place that's consistent with an economy that's a uh, global economy that's expanding. I think that's also uh, been uh, a contributor to the, the to getting back to normal. So that, that's all good. Um, you know, this is an easy one. Uh, I'm sure you're going to get it right away, but I'm just going to say, because this is an important one, 2.35%. Inflation expectations. Yeah, exactly. 2.35%. That's the, that's our, uh, inflation expectations pulse index, which is a combination of a bunch of different measures of inflation expectations. Uh, and that's uh, for the consumer expenditure deflator. Uh, and uh, at 2.35%, that's just, you know, that's above the Fed's target of 2%, long run through the cycle target of 2%. And that's probably about where they would want to see it peak out. I don't think they'd want to see that go much higher than that, but it feels like it's starting to peak out. If you look, uh, peak is, feels like it's kind of rolling over here a little bit as survey-based expectations start to come in uh, a little bit with uh, more stable oil prices. So uh, that, that's that's good news. Um, Michigan was down too, right? The, what's that? The inflation expectations from the University of Michigan survey, I believe those were lower as well. Yeah, that's right. Consistent. Yep. That, that, uh, that survey came out today, I think, didn't it? Or yeah. yesterday? Yeah. yeah. Today, right. this morning. Yeah. Hey, uh, while we're on inflation, Ryan, this is something you were going to investigate. I'm not sure if you've gotten around to it. And it's relevant to today's PCE deflator data, which came out. You know, that's the measure 
of inflation the Fed uses to peg monetary policy. Uh, did you notice that PCE deflator inflation is now above on a year-over-year basis CPI inflation? And that's yes. incredibly unusual. It's happened in, in times past, but very, very rarely. Do, do, you, do you have a sense of, as to, you said you were going to look into that. And I just wondered if you had a chance to look into that, why that's going on. So we haven't banked all the data yet from this morning's release. I think all the really granular data. So I will have it for you next week. I'm going to write it okay. up on the site and then we can all talk right. about it uh, next week. Yeah. I'm just, I, I was just pretty glad, pretty big difference actually. Mm -hmm. So it's a little surprising. So that would be, that would be good. Um, before we move on to markets and the big topic, uh, we have the statistics that we've been calling out on a regular basis. And uh, Chris, I, yours is the unemployment insurance numbers. So what do yep. they, what do they, what did they say last week? Yeah, claims for last week came in at uh, 411,000. Uh, the week before was revised up to 418,000. So looking at those two weeks, it, it's an improvement, uh, not a dramatic improvement. And certainly there is some statistical noise in here just based on the revisions itself. Um, so it's good, but I wouldn't get overly excited uh, about it. It's not really showing dramatic improvement or deterioration at this point. So. Yeah. I, I still think uh, we'll continue to, to move in this positive direction, but things won't really accelerate until later as we get to August, September. School's up and up. Uh, UI benefits expire. You know, we'll get a, a ramp up in, in activity then. Claims were still down between the reference weeks. So the BLS employment report, that's mm. the week that includes the 12th, they're still down. So job growth should be stronger for June than it was in May. What was it in May? It was like six, seven, I can't remember, six, seven hundred. Five fifty-nine. Right around there. So you think it's gonna, it's gonna come in stronger than that, do you mm -hmm. think? Based yes. on the claims data. Right. And a few other Statistics. Know, the, the mobility data, home based data, uh, all kind of points to an acceleration in job growth. And then so there's what's a number. What's your number? Uh, I have seven fifty, seven hundred and fifty thousand. Oh, that's a good number. Okay. That's pretty healthy. That's good. for total. Yeah, total. Yeah, of course, you'll refine that as we get closer and we get more. Well, is it coming out yeah. next? Is it going to come out? Comes next out next week? Friday. Yeah, next Friday. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I'll fine tune it once we get ADP. Uh, we get one of the ISM surveys. So I'll let you know if it changes. Right. Right. And just to remind everyone, a, 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 a UI claims that is consistent with a great economy, a good economy is. 250,000. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> 250,000. So we're still not quite there yet. Are we, is it useful to watch UI claims from, from, for some of these uh, Southern states that have ended the supplemental UI? Do you think that's going to affect the number of people who are filing for claims? Uh, it certainly or, should. I yeah. haven't looked at that. I don't know, Ryan, if you may have, but uh, yeah, we should certainly start take following that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I also think it will affect the number of people that are receiving pandemic unemployment insurance benefits. Maybe more people drop off continuing claims faster, but that's something that we should definitely be keeping close tracking. Yep. Yeah, let's watch that. Maybe, maybe, if, go ahead. No, I was just going to say a couple of weeks from now when we reconvene, let's let's talk. Let's maybe you can take a look at that so we can. Yeah. Very curious what's going on there. Yeah. Based on Google Trends, you can look for like job search intensity by states using a few keywords. Yeah. Uh, in the states that ended it, 
you see a, a little bit of an improvement compared to states that are still paying the uh, expanded UI benefits, but not this huge, you know, gap that would suggest that UI is a, was a huge issue. That is interesting. Can, can you send that Google data Trends. to me? Yeah. Can you send me pull it? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. So what do you do? Index it to 100 at some point in time and just see how it, look, how it moves? So the states where you've ended it and states where you haven't ended the supplemental UI? I could do it that way. No, I, okay. The way I was doing it was just taking a simple average across the states that had ended it and then the states that had not ended uh, UI benefits, you know, looking at them and smoothing it, you know, to take out some of the volatility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take a look at that. That's a, that's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and, and Ryan, your statistic, uh, I always forget it. What was it? It's the 10-year treasury. Oh, the 10-year. Well, how can I forget that? I mean, all right, why didn't you hold one. on to that? Because we're going to come back to markets in yeah, a second. Yeah. And we might as well just start with that because uh, that is kind of the Rosetta Stone for understanding to a large degree what's going on in mar markets, I think. Yeah. And my statistic was copper prices, is copper prices. Uh, and it, uh, I just looked before we started the podcast, $4.30, maybe a little shy of that per pound. Uh, and- that's up a little bit from last week, but still below the the peak, which we achieved back in early May for $4.75. And just for context, if you're over $4 a pound, that's consistent with an economy that's a uh, global economy that's uh, doing well and uh, there are significant inflationary pressures. Anything around three, that's kind of typical. Anything below two, that's consistent with the economy that's really struggling. So uh, we're still seeing a lot of inflationary pressures out there uh, related to the uh, restarting of the economy, the global economy economy from the pandemic. So uh, I'll keep watching that one. Okay, so um, anything else on the statistics that you want to bring up before we move on to the big topic and markets? Uh, just uh, anything out there you want to call out? I was a little surprised about that you picked inflation expectations. As my indicator? Yeah, I thought you were going to go of minus 20%. Uh Minus twenty percent. That that statistic really did stand out this week. I think it was last Friday. I had not one but two clients bring up minus twenty percent to me this week. What are you guys talking about, Chris? Oh, look at him! Look at him! Look at him! I see. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> are, are we? Hold on, wait a second. Are we talking about my uh, interview that was on CNBC regarding the possibility of a correction? A uh, stock market correction? Is I that believe, what you're talking about? I believe the headline was Zandy says beginning <laughs> of a correction is underway. See, I, that's just, uh, that's I don't just think possibility wrong. was in there. It was, uh, it was yeah. pretty certain. You know, you know, the, uh, there's this, this uh, uh, old, uh, uh, I guess adage is the right word, but uh, sound piece of advice, never forecast something in the date at the same time. <laughs> you know, so, and I did not do that. I did not violate that. That principle, but the, the, uh, I, I guess they took license. And uh, I said, I don't know when the correction is going to occur like tomorrow or whether it's already started next week, next quarter, but this market is getting highly valued and is very vulnerable to a significant correction. And we will come back to that because, mm -hmm. I, you know, as the market keeps going higher, the, 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 the more I uh, believe that the more, the stronger my confidence in, in that perspective, but thank you for calling that out. That was very kind of you. 
I really appreciate that. Anytime. Any when did that interview occur? Was it after you left the Sixers game? Oh. <laughs> oh, wait. Could have, that could have fed into your pessimism. Friday? Was that last Friday? When was the Sixers game? I can't remember. Uh, you were there. It might have been. It might have been last Friday. Yeah. I think it was last Friday. Yeah, yeah. That was game seven. That was that was a bad day, actually. The Sixers lost game seven to uh, – who did they lose to? Oh, Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. But, I, yeah, my son and I went. We, we had great seats. We had very good seats. Yeah. We, we had a lot of fun. And um, uh, I hadn't been to a, a ball game in, uh, I don't know, at least a year and a half, a long time. So it really felt good to be with lots of people screaming and yelling and having a lot of fun. But disappointing ending. I know you weren't upset by that, though, Ryan. Being as, No, as a Celtics fan, I was, I was very happy with the result. Really? I mean, I kind of – that's weird because – I kind of root for Boston when the when the Sixers lose because you know we're arch rivals and I always like to see. But you have a very different attitude. It's kind of anyone who's not Boston you have a problem with. No, no, anyone I root for anyone that plays the Yankees. Uh, no, I don't. I'm not anti-Philadelphia <laughs> sports. I think Boston and Philadelphia sports fans just don't see eye to eye on things. That's true. I'm, I'm, that's definitely true. I rooted for the Phillies when they were in the World Series. If the Sixers made it to the championship, I would root for them to win. Yeah. Well, you know, so you notice Chris doesn't even enter into this conversation because all he cares about is that bochi ball thing, you know? Oh, we got the Euros going on. Come on. <clears throat> oh, that's true. They are. That, that, I haven't watched any of that. I know Ben's a big fan of that. Ben, Ben's our sound guy. Yeah. But uh, uh, Chris, are you an yeah. MLS fan? No, not really. Never really got into it. Yeah. Still time though. My son is young. So. He'll play. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about the, the markets and let's go right to the bond market. So, when, you know, the, 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 the kind of the frame here is markets are hot. When I say markets, I mean, asset markets um, and asset markets that includes the bond market. We'll start there the stock market, real estate markets, both uh, housing and uh, commercial real estate, commodity markets, crypto market, you know, anything you can, anything that you can turn into cold, hard cash, uh, we'll call an asset in an asset market. You can use it to pay down any debt. Uh, that's, that's an asset. Uh, so let's start with uh, the bond market and the, the kind of the, you know, the benchmark, and that's the 10-year treasury bond, the treasury yield. And that's still sitting at one point. Well, I don't know. Is it one point five percent? I think it is, right? It's been up and down a little bit, but I think we're still. Yeah, today it's up four basis points to one point five three percent. Right, one point five three percent. Okay. Um, so, you know, we've been we've been down this path a few times in, the, in these podcasts. Any any thoughts on to what's going on there, and you know why we're kind of. How long have we been at 1.5 now, or roughly 1.5? It's been at least several. It's like months. all year, right? Yeah. Is it pretty much all year? Yeah. Yeah, since the beginning and, of the year, a very tight range. The tenure has been trading him. Here, you know, this is when I talk about this. This is how I talk about. It. I'm curious what you guys think uh, about this frame. So I say uh, to, to understand where interest rates are headed, take the ten-year Treasury yield decompose it into inflation expectations, and then the real yield. The real yield is simply 10-year treasury yields, the nominal 10-year treasury yield, less inflation expectations. 
And inflation expectations, well, as we discussed earlier, they've normalized, they've risen. The, based on CPI inflation expectations, we're now sitting somewhere just south of 2.5%, which is kind of at the high end of the range that the Fed would probably feel comfortable with, consistent with that PCE inflation expectations numbers of 2.35% we were just talking about. So that seems like that is roughly where you'd expect it. I probably don't mm-hmm. wouldn't argue that that would go much higher. Uh, if it did, then something's going off the rails. Uh, but that leaves the real yield, the nominal at 1.5, inflation expectations at 2.5. That means the real yield is like negative 1%. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to make any sense in the context of the economy that we're seeing, this very strong growth with lots of jobs, unemployment coming in. Everyone's general view that we're going back to full employment soon, uh, by the end of 2022, certainly no later than the start of 2023. So you would expect real yields to go from being really negative to less negative and then ultimately positive. I mean, you would think in a well-functioning economy, it should be somewhere around one to one and a half percent because one to one and a half percent plus, you know, two, two and a half, that gets you kind of in the long run where you expect the nominal 10-year treasury yields to be somewhere around three and a half to 4%. Does that, does that kind of, way of thinking about it makes sense to you? Is that how you think about it? Or are you thinking about it in a different way? No, I, I agree with Chris that your framework makes a lot of sense. The one thing I add is when I look at the tenure, uh, the term premium. So the extra compensation that investors need to hold long-term rates versus short-term. And that is one reason that, you know, real rates are still, you know, firmly negative. So the term premiums negative because of QE and things like that. Yeah, but uh, Ryan, uh, you can, de- uh, as you're suggesting, you can decompose that real yield, that minus one percent. Oh yeah, that, right. Into the, into the term pre- into real short-term interest rate expectations, plus, w- which I think is, or at least I thought it. W- I, my 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 thought is that that's the market's thinking around monetary policy in the direction that's correct. of monetary yep. policy. And then the term premium, the term premium is the compensation investors get for investing in a long-term bond compared to a short-term bond, because presumably there's you know more uncertainty, more risk, and therefore you should get some compensation for that. And if you look at that, the term premium has actually gone from being very negative back in the teeth of the pandemic to close to zero. So that's actually improved, but the real short-term uh, uh, interest rate yeah, has right. continued to decline and become even more negative. That's what I can't get my mind around. You know, why would that be the case? I mean, what's going on that would cause that? That's just you know, because any of anything, you know, the Fed. Everyone seems the Fed seems to be moving towards uh, increasing short-term rates sooner than they had previously said, and 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 uh, you know what they're thinking. So why is that? Why is it? Do you have any sense of why that's happening? Why are real short-term interest rates declining like that? Why they've gotten even more negative? No, I mean it's 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 puzzling to me as well. Yeah, it's puzzling. Yeah, I don't know, Chris. We got you back. Yeah, can you hear me now? Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're okay, sounding okay. great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We, you're sounding very good. Uh, so yeah. we were just talking mm-hmm. about. I think you, this is where you went. You know, trying to understand why real yields are as low as they are. 
but I'll just throw it back at you. Is there any, yeah. anything about the frame that uh, you want to call out or you think is missing? How, how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I, I think it, you're right. It is a bit of a puzzle. I think the frame is a good one. One, one question I have more than an answer is whether we should actually be thinking about the treasury market on a global scale, right? Is it given the, uh, the dominance of the dollar and uh, investor, global investors needing to uh, allocate capital to the U.S. as well, should we be thinking, should we be using a, a global inflation expectation or a global uh, type of uh, framework? So same framework, but maybe the, the parameters are not U.S. centric. Perhaps it's it's a broader picture. Yeah, yeah, maybe that, that makes a, that make more sense. So then you're saying, so inflation expectations globally comes a question of how you would measure that. Yeah, yeah. Abstracting from that for a second, they have not moved up nearly as much as U.S. inflation expectations. Therefore, real yields haven't fallen as much as we think they have, at least when we use U.S. inflation expectations. That's right. That's one way to square the circle. Uh, right. You kind of you're kind of saying you're, it sounds like you're saying that, that's a theory. I'm not sure I believe it, but maybe. Yeah, uh, I, I do believe that uh, foreign investors certainly do have a significant impact, right? And the, it's not only the absolute, but the relative options that are available for capital allocation that matter, right? And you've made this point before about the 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 German investor, right? What are my preference? What are my options here between a German bund or a, a U.S. Treasury? Right. Um, even with a negative that negative return, it might be a less negative return uh, in the U.S. than my other best option. So you still have that demand coming in. Yeah. What? What, Chris? One thing you, or excuse me, Ryan. One thing you mentioned last week or the week before when we were talking about this, just because it's such a puzzle, we keep coming back to it. It's a kind of a mind-numbing. Uh, a kind of discussion and it has so much so many implications for everything and we'll get to the to, to asset prices in just a second but by the way this is an asset price right this is a, the price of a bond right so we are already talking about asset prices and they're high when when bond prices are high interest rates are low so we're talking about uh, a, an asset market where prices are high very high record high right i mean because interest rates are they're not at record lows at the moment but they're pretty damn close to record lows Ryan, you mentioned the um, coming at the uh, uh, the fact that the uh, that issuance is way down, uh, bond, uh, Treasury issuance is way down. We, we have these large budget deficits. The, the Treasury has been issuing a lot of of debt, uh, but that 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 issuance is uh, down, and that's because we they've been drawing down an account uh, at the the Treasury's been drawing down one of its accounts at the Fed. Uh, and using that to finance uh, activities as opposed to issuing more debt or bonds. So I, did I get that right? Did I explain yeah, that? Yeah, you got that spot on. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I got to look at treasury issuance. I think it's coming in weaker than what people were expecting, and that's having implications for the 10-year. But again, it is, it's back to your point that the treasury is drawing down this account. So do you think that's, that could be playing a role here as well? I do. Right. Because if there's less issuance... You know, that, that means less supply. So prices don't, you know, when supply goes down, prices are going to go up and put downward pressure on interest rates. Right. Okay. All right. And when we de decompose the real yield into real short-term interest rates and the term premium, 
what's the residual there? What's the, is it, is it the term premium that we back out? It's the, we, back uh, we out calculate the, the term premium. We calculate the term premium. Right. And then what the, it's the real short-term interest rate. That's the residual. That, Correct. You know, that, that's the difference between all the stuff we know and what's left over. Okay. Right. And I tried it both ways when we did it. And then we settled on using the methodology from the federal reserve on estimating the term premium. And it seemed like the residual for the, the expected path of the real Fed funds rate made much more sense under that, using that as a residual than trying to estimate it. Okay. I know we're getting really into the weeds and some of the, we've probably lost some of the, the, um, the listeners, so we'll move on, but that's, that's an interesting point. Okay. So uh, when I think about asset prices more broadly, um, you hear that echo now? No? Got a lot of technical issues going on. Uh, I'll keep I'll keep going. Hopefully, it goes away. Um, interest rates are a key factor driving the prices for all assets, right? Because kind of the way I think about a- asset prices, uh, the value of an asset is equal to the stream of returns on that asset. You know, if it's a stock, it's corporate earnings. If it's uh, a home, it's it's rent payments. If it's commercial real estate, it's it's rent payments. It's the it's that future stream of of uh, returns uh, on a present value basis. So what are the what's that stream of future returns equal to today? Uh, and of course, the, that present value, uh, what it's worth today, uh, is uh, dependent on the interest rate. So if the interest rate is if the general interest rate is lower, uh, that in all else being equal, that drives up the price of all assets. The value of corporate earnings in the future are, are uh, worth a lot more if interest rates are very low. The the the, the value of that sh- a future stream of rents uh, is worth a lot more if interest rates are low. So if you have low interest rates, that uh, a lot that causes uh, prices to move higher across the board. Uh, and in the case of the housing market, as we discussed, you know if interest rates are very, very low. That also juices up demand for, in the case, housing. And that bumps up against fixed supply or relatively fixed supply, and you get this in- significant increase in prices. So there's lots of different ways low interest rates uh, help to support uh, support asset prices. And, and to some degree, and Ryan, maybe you can explain this, that's by kind of sort of by design, right? I mean, that's one reason why the Fed lowers re- interest rates in a tough time. Uh, it's an effort to get uh, asset prices higher. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's one of the uh, monetary policy transmission mechanisms. How, so how the Fed can try to either speed up the economy or slow it down uh, is through uh, asset prices. And their primary lever to affect asset prices used to be, and it still is, the Fed funds rate. But now they have uh, quantitative easing or the purchase of you know, mortgage-backed securities, long-term treasury uh, bonds, and that can influence the price of of assets. Right, and it, it also generates a whole kind of a whole range of, of uh, debate and controversy around uh, uh, who benefits from monetary policy. Right, I mean, because high income, high net worth households own all the assets. Then, when the Fed lowers interest rates, they and it juices up asset prices. Uh, it they benefit. High income, high net worth households benefit. Low income households that don't own a home or 
certainly don't own any stock, they they don't benefit from it. But I, I that's a tough one, right? Because um, it, you know it's not like anyone's getting hurt, you know, directly from the lower interest rates. It's just that the people who are benefiting or people who are already in a pretty good spot financially. But at the end of the day, that's kind of sort of needs to happen to help, at least partially to help support the economy and get it back up and running so that everyone can get back to work and even lower, lower middle income, income households can benefit. But it's a pretty tough one. Yeah. I mean, the Fed funds are, is a, it's a blunt tool and they try not to use it to, you know, prick asset bubbles. And I know with all the attention on the income and wealth inequality in the U.S., they're you know the Fed's paying, you know, trying to to address that, but they can't use the Fed funds rate. I mean, the best way for them to address the income or wealth uh, disparity is to run the economy hot and get unemployment rates across all uh, demographic cohorts as low as possible. Yeah, right. So let's get down to brass tacks uh, and uh, stock prices. They seem to be hitting record highs every single day. I mean, you're here, we're sitting here on, the, on a Friday. I haven't, I haven't looked in the last uh, you know, 40 minutes, but it looks like we're going to hit another record high on the S&P 500. Does that make sense to you? What, are you, what do you think about that? Uh, Chris, are, are you a buyer of stocks? I mean, I've never, I mean, I probably don't for a question. I, pr- I probably oh. shouldn't ask you this. You can answer well, it we, any way you want, but would you buy, would you buy stocks at this price? What, what are you doing right now? Are you, are you a buyer, a seller? Are you holding? How do you think about this? Okay. So we had the episode where we disclosed our politics and now this is the episode where we disclosed. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not. By the time this I'm podcast a, is over, you know, five years from now, there'll be nothing left about us. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's right. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not a particularly a stock investor, right? I became an economist, right? Because I'm not, not particularly uh, adept at, uh, at managing portfolios or picking stocks. So my, my approach has always been, certainly based on my current stage of life, just, uh, just to continue. Uh, investing a fixed amount every month through thick and thin, don't really pay attention, kind of on, on autopilot. So yes, I am a buyer in that sense today, but I was a buyer through the through the pandemic as well. But I'm not I'm not reallocating. I'm not putting every, you know, I'm not seeing opportunity and say, oh, really I should sell or go into debt to to go into the stock market at this point. It's just there is un- some uncertainty around that. I agree with you that stocks certainly do seem richly valued, but you know, I would. I said the same thing when the Dow was at thirty thousand, or twenty five, or even twenty thousand, right? So, uh, for that reason, I kind of take this more disciplined approach because I can't trust myself to <laughs> to make the right decisions at the right time. Well, let me ask it this way: If you were an investment manager, suppose you decide, okay, you, I'm not yeah. going to be an economist; I'm going to be an investment manager, and I'm, I'm thinking broadly about the the stock market. And yeah. I'm a I'm a manager; I can put my money anywhere on the planet. In anything I, I can invest in anything, would you be investing in stocks? I mean, so let me put it this way. Uh, also, add in one more piece of uh, information because I think it's important. Your horizon, your investment horizon, is over the next, let's say, next year or two. N- not next ten years. Okay. Not next month, but something kind of a year or two down the road. Yeah, and, that and makes your, all the your, difference. Your bonus is going to be judged on how, how well you do here in terms of your investment decisions. Yeah, even there, I would say it's a. I would take a balanced approach. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put zero on stocks. I, if I, if you give me the option to be more selective, right? I, I tend to be, 
I would tend to be more contrarian, might look at sectors that are underperforming, an expectation that we'll have some mean reversion. But um, I certainly wouldn't be all in. I would I would look, look for a more balanced approach. And I would have some money in bonds, right? Internationally, I would, I would still look to diversify. So the way I, I would characterize what you just said is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if in a, on average, through time, 60% of my portfolio would be in stocks, at this point in time, it might be 40% or 50%. Yeah, something, yeah. something like that. That's fair. Right. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. That's how you kind of, kind of do it. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and if you were on CNBC and they were asking you about the stock market and a possibility of a correction, how would you have answered that question? Oh, well, a correction is always a possibility, but, but historically, right, uh, stock uh, stock values tend to go up. I don't expect a, I don't see an immediate trigger for a crash, but it's very hard to determine what a no, trigger. No, no, no. Well, crash. That's crash is a strong word. Well, twenty percent, twenty percent. No, I didn't say twenty. No, corrections ten. I did not say twenty percent. <laughs> I said ten to twenty percent. And then they actually asked you. <laughs> If they said, no, wait, I said it would not be over, certainly not over 20, because that would signal probably a recession. And no one, I'm not thinking that. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking it's an overvalued market, not a, not a signal of some kind of, uh, of uh, some kind of a problem in the economy. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> All right. You, what about you, Ryan? That given that conversation, how how would how do you how would are you investing in stocks? And if you don't want to answer that question, if you were a hypothetical investment manager, would you be investing in stocks? I would or would you take the same you. path, the same milk toast <laughs> kind of? Oh oh know. wow! <laughs> no no, I'm similar to Chris the way in my oh, thinking. I knew it because I I mean yeah, remember I got three little kids. I'm worried about college fifteen years from now, so I got I got time to write it out. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. No, no you're What right. about you, Mark? Uh, given okay, your call. so I'm older than you guys, right? Uh, and I think I know something, <laughs> okay. which is always dangerous. <laughs> uh, I have reduced my exposure to uh, the equity market. Um, and uh, in, in part, in large part, because I think it is overvalued. I think it is frothy. Uh, I mean, d- just think about meme stocks, you know, game, game, sure. st- uh, GameStop, you know, meme stocks are a bunch of guys or girls or get on social media. They col- it's like a flash mob for stocks. They decide collectively, I'm going to buy this stock and drive up the price. And by the way, I could care less if it is a, if it's a, a company that's doing well or not, or anything. Uh, in fact, I, I might even go for stocks that aren't doing well because they're being shorted by institutional investors. This is the GameStop kerfuffle. And I don't like institutional investors. I'm an individual investor and, and I'm collectively going to make life difficult for these, these, you know, these, uh, these fat cats you know, that are out there investing as institutional investors. Uh, and they're driving up you know, stocks of you know, AMC and you know, all kinds of companies that you know, really... That, that doesn't feel like uh, a healthy market to me. That feels like a market that is uh, uh, infected to some degree by, by froth. Or um, it's a dot com bubble, right? The SPACs, the, the SPACs are these, uh, these uh, vehicles that are essentially uh, 
set up so that you can go out and acquire companies, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or the Archigos, I'm, I'm not going to go into any detail here, but, you know, the Archigos uh, scandal, uh, these are symptomatic of a market that isn't functioning, uh, it, you know, at uh, uh, tip top. Uh, a healthy, a healthy market, and it's not just stocks. You know, it's 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 pretty much across the board. You know, we talked about we talked about housing numerous times now, and there's signs of, you know, uh, you know, of uh, things getting overdone there. We've talked about crypto. We've talked about, uh, you know, the credit. We just were talking about credit spreads in the bond market. You know, pick your asset. You know, so, so it just feels like uh, markets are frothy. Now that doesn't mean they can't go higher. In fact. Odds are pretty high they're going to go higher because when you're in that kind of a you know frothy market, that means that sentiment is taken over and sentiment can run for a while, either on the upside or the downside. Right now we're on the upside and that can carry markets a lot higher. And and, and that's why I said I kind of said earlier and I'll repeat it. You know every day the market goes up from here, the more confident I get in my statement that there's going to be a correction because the further it's getting away from kind of the underlying fundamentals, corporate, the present value of future corporate earnings. We're moving away from that. So it becomes more vulnerable. And you ask, well, what's the catalyst for that change? I'll tell you what the catalyst, rising interest rates. Interest rates are going to rise. They're, they're just, just, they're just going to rise, you know, one way or the other, because this economy is strong and it's going back to full employment. Inflation is already at the top end of the target for the Fed, they're going to rise. And by the way, if long-term interest rates don't rise, that means short-term interest rates got to rise a lot more, right? I mean, ergo, right? If, because if the economy is hot and growing very strongly and long-term rates are uh, depressed because of foreign buying because things are bad overseas, well, well, what's going to cause the economy to slow down? I mean, what are we, what are we, you know, what's the mechanism for that, for that to happen? The answer is the Fed's got to put his foot on the brake a lot sooner and faster and press a lot harder. Short-term interest is going to rise. That, and that's even a worse scenario than if long rates kind of drifted higher in a normal, typical way. So, and by the way, that's the fodder for an overheating economy in a recession, right? That's you get inverted yield curves. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about that at some point in the future, in the not too distant future. So, Ryan will. Ryan. Yeah. So you get my point. You get my point. Mm -hmm. So you're asking me, I, I have reduced my exposure to the equity market. And you, you say, well, well, I'll stop there. I've been ranting. I could go on. You, yeah, the, the no, we're giving you a hard time. We're giving you yeah. a hard time about your CNBC interview, but I think you're going to be yeah. right. Not 20. I think that was, you went a little too far out of the limb there. I did not Look. say 20. <laughs> I'm just I started. <laughs> Let's talk about the crypto king. I want to go back no, to the gonna crypto get, king. We're going to get a 10% correction. Do you still think they're going to raise the capital gains tax next year? Um, I, yeah, I think I, that's in our baseline. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that, you know, that's a that's a close one, but I, I, we, they need to raise some tax revenue if they're going to get that. There's the Biden social programs through. I mean, they got the infrastructure package, they paid nominally paid for that. You saw that this week, mm -hmm. but that's they're using everything in the kitchen sink to do that, right? I mean, uh, I mean, they're they're piecing that the, the revenues of that together without any taxes, which is you know they're using everything they got for that one. So if they want to get if they want to pay for any of the social program. Uh, pro, uh, that they're you know, going to put forward, they need some kind of tax increase, and, and it's got to come from corporations, and that's got to come from high-income households, and that's got that that's so, got to be capital gains, yeah. Or so, or, so if we get know, that, some variant of that, if we get that, that's going to trigger a correction in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah. If not that, you have a debt ceiling fight that's coming up that's going to be nasty. And you also have the Fed that's going to announce the, their tapering plans. So all that stuff kind of argues for you know a quick 10%, 5 10% decline in the stock market. So what's the alternative? Oh, okay. See that? So I, I, so Ryan, I'm at 10 to 20. And let's say before the end of the year, because again, I can't, I don't know if it's next week, next month, next quarter, but by the end of the year, because by the end of the year, I think that's when it's going to become clear interest rates are headed higher. So by the end of the year, I, I would say, and this is what I said on CNBC, 10 to 20% decline. And Ryan is now saying, I'm not putting I'm words say- in your mouth. You're saying- 10 to 5 to 10? 10 to 12. Oh, 10 to 12. Okay. All yeah. right. Okay. 10, 10 to 12. And then Chris is saying, uh, Chris is saying, what are you saying, Chris? I would say 5 to 10. You would? Down? Down. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Like fine. Modest. Okay. All right. Very good. If, we get the, if we're getting a tax hike, right, then certainly it's going to have, it has to have some effect, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you got you're taxing some probability to, to a tax hike. Right. I mean, I we don't know for sure, but you know, some some probability. Yeah. So you're you're saying there's a a better than even odds that. So this is what we're saying. I'm saying there's better than even odds by the before the end of the year we get a ten to twenty percent correction in the S and P five hundred. Ryan is saying ten to to twelve point one five six seven eight percent, and Chris is saying I'll five to under. ten. Yeah. You're taking the under. Okay. Fair Which enough. means stocks will be up 15 to 20% <laughs> since we're all going in. No, I know. I know. But that, that that just means that there's a higher probability that in the next six months, it's going to fall. And it's going to fall one. even more. Yep. It's fall even more. Kind of like the housing market. Okay. So, so where, let's- Where have uh, you reallocated to that market? See, that was, that was the question you ah, needed okay. to ask. And I, I, I was going to go there, but I was ranting. I felt like I was going on too long. Deutschland? Huh? Was that Crypto King? What's what's that new thing? Like the dog coin, whatever that. Have you heard about that? I think it's yeah, it's Doge. 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 Yeah. Doggy coin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where do I put the money? I, I put it into two places. Uh, one is just straight up cash. Some you know my cash position continues to rise. I'm not definitely not putting it into bonds. You know, just given the discussion, we just we're just given my rant. Uh, and uh, in uh, rental real estate, into into uh, uh, you know help uh, investing in uh, investments in single family properties in uh, urban centers, you know properties that have been vacant for you know probably since soon after World War II in Philadelphia, uh, renovating those properties and then then renting those properties because you know in my this goes to. Our, all our discussions about the rental market and the housing market, how undersupplied it is and how uh, the housing stock uh, is, uh, we need more housing stock. Uh, and so, uh, you know, consistent with that, with that perspective and that view. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Now one, one thing that, you know, the listener may be wondering about, he goes, well, why are you guys talking about asset prices anyway? You know, you know, what's, you're not investment managers. So, why do you have a view on this? Uh, I've got my opinion. Do you guys have a view on why we're talking about this? Why why are we focused on asset prices? I mean, why why do we care about asset prices? It certainly, didn't we the learn economy, from the, right? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say it does affect the real economy, right? Mm-hmm. The households, certainly high, high net worth households in particular, have a lot of exposure, and if their nest eggs are hit, they're 
their spending and investing investing behavior is going to change. So it's it certainly is important. And don't you think the great recession and the financial crisis taught us that you know our standard macro models pre-crisis didn't really do a good job of incorporating financial market conditions and inter and its interaction with the real economy. Yeah. So that's why I think we pay a lot more attention now than we did 2005, 2006. Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, the Federal Reserve has asset prices in its reaction function, right? They, mm-hmm. when I say reaction function, these are the variables they look at when trying to decide monetary policy. Number one, you know, the job market, are we back to full employment? Number two, inflation, inflation expectations. Number three, what they call financial conditions. And that's a euphemism for asset prices, you know, what's going on in asset markets. Uh, just to round it out, they also talk about global conditions as well. But so asset prices matter to the setting of monetary policy determines the wealth of the of the uh, of the uh, of consumers and therefore their willingness and ability to go out and spend. It affects the financial system and uh, financial institutions because they invest in bonds and stocks and everything else. And depending on what those prices are, that uh, determines you know their financial condition and their ability to extend out credit. And so we spent a lot of time actually modeling it. Now we generally, I generally do not talk about asset prices except when I feel like they're out, you know, they're not consistent with kind of underlying fundamentals and therefore pose a risk, you know, to the economy. Right, right now, prices are high relative to the fundamentals, and therefore there's a risk that we get a correction, and that could change the contours of our forecast. Then there are times, you know, when asset prices are are low. You know, relative to fundamentals. And I talk about that. I'll talk about asset prices then because they, that, that means that prices will rise more quickly and that could help uh, be a positive uh, support to economic growth. Uh, so I, I, you know, generally my philosophy is not to talk as an economist about asset prices, stock values, bond values, uh, real estate values, unless they're out of whack, you know, unless they're not consistent with underlying fundamentals. And they're not. And in our modeling, that's exactly how we model it, right? So we have, here's uh, what the price of this asset should be, stocks, bonds, real estate, given fundamentals, given corporate earnings, given rents, given uh, you know, the, the stream of future returns and interest rate expectations. And you know, we, here's the actual price relative to the fundamentals. And our models will take the actual price back to, to the, those fundamental values to so-called equilibrium over some period of time, and and uh, that's built into our forecast as well. So it's a very important, uh, very important uh, f- element of our modeling and of our uh, economic uh, of forecasting. So if we did um, get a, oh, sorry, last question. Did, no, if we did go ahead. A, if we so if we did get a twenty percent correction, that, are you anticipating that we would be in recession as a result? No, you know, What's uh, you know, it, it, uh, you know, obviously, pretend twenty percent. I pick those for a reason because it's kind of a rule of thumb. Ten percent is typically thought of as a garden variety correction in the stock market. We've had num- many of those, and they they don't necessarily mean anything for the economy, right? They just a, just a, it's just a correction. Markets have gone high very fast, and they're just coming back in. Twenty percent that's consistent with a so-called bear market. You know, you uh, although. We've had a number of times recently where we've gone down 20 and we come right back. So it doesn't feel much like a bear market per se, but anything more than 20 though, that to me is the market is signaling that something is wrong with the fundamentals. You know, 
the economy is weakening, it's going to go into recession, corporate earnings are going to suffer. The economy is weakening, it's going into recession, that's going to hurt uh, you know, uh, uh, rents uh, and uh, CRE, commercial real estate values or housing values. So, uh, it, so if it's over 20, and it, you know, go, that would be more consistent with the idea that the market is signaling you know, a problem dead ahead. You know, for the economy, and I, I just don't. I it's that that seems like a stretch to me. You know, at this point, given all the things that are going on in the economy, so I don't. I I, I don't expect that. I don't expect that. All right, we've been going. I mean, uh, we're already. Uh, at, you know, probably at time here. We've gone for for about an hour. Um, anything else on on markets? You want to? We didn't really talk about crypto. I mean, that's that's obviously symptomatic of the froth, the uh, speculation. We're gonna have our. I think we should have our one podcast just devoted to crypto. So we'll come back to that. I mean, we want to do one other... on the corporate bond market because if you look at high yield bond issuance and credit spreads, they're very very tight. And issuance is strong. And in the last ten days, leverage loan issuance has really really picked up. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And, and you, the catalyst was the hawkish shift in the Fed's dot plots. So a lot of the new issuances is repriced, or a lot of the issuance is repricings basically refinancings in expecting and expectations of higher rates coming sooner. Oh, interesting. So yeah, let's do that as well. We'll have a, a podcast on the corporate, uh, what's going on in the corporate bond market as well. Um, commercial anything else estate. on markets? What's even that? Commercial real estate is an interesting one, right? Cause they're yeah. even, even flat is up uh, at the moment. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've been, we've been pretty wrong about that. Right. I mean, back in the start of the pandemic, we thought commercial real estate values would weaken and they, I don't think they have to any pre- appreciable degree. No. Depends on the property type. I guess hotels, maybe hotel prices, but not not broadly. They've held up very yeah. broadly. No, another of sign of the strength. What's that, Chris? There weren't a lot of transactions during the pandemic either because because of all the support. So we, the shadow prices might have gone down, but nobody actually had to transact. A few people had to actually transact those levels. So, Right. Yeah, you know this. Uh, you you make fun of me, but uh, go ahead, make fun, uh, make fun of me. But uh, this reminds me. I, I've been through a number of cycles now. Uh, uh, assets, uh, asset price cycles. You know, there was the uh, the Y two K bubble in the equity market in the late nineties, around uh, two thousand, uh, and then there was obviously the housing bubble that was kind of the mid two thousands, and you know those those. I remember coming out and saying these markets are overvalued; they're ready for a correction. And I started saying that maybe two to three years before they actually <laughs> corrected in a significant way. Because what happens—that's the definition of a bubble, right? I mean, when uh, uh, when people kind of uh, just let loose and the uh, keep on buying, regardless of whether it's close to fundamentals, and then you hear story, then you hear arguments as to you know, why tried and true measures of valuations don't work anymore, why this market is different, why these companies that were, uh, that uh, the stock price is up for are different than the companies that, you know, for back in the Y2K bubble, you know, all these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, rationalizations for why, you know, no other way to put it, this time is different. And so uh, this this can go on for a while and I could be wrong for, for a good long while, but uh, at the end of the day, it, it, at this point, if markets don't correct between now and the end of the year and they keep on rising, I assure you we're going to be back here and I'm going to be screaming even more loudly that it's that we're going to see a, a major correction, that the market's even more vulnerable 
and more likely to suffer that correction and suffer bigger declines. Okay. Yeah. With that, we're going to call it a podcast. And uh, as I said, we're going to take next week off, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks and we'll have a lot to talk about then. So thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.